As I mentioned, we would do way back in August. We've been moving far more quickly through the second half of Revelation than we moved through the first half. For a couple of reasons, I came to believe that this approach would be more pastorally helpful than lingering in the book of Revelation for another year or so, which we likely would have done if we had kept to the pace that we had been moving at. So God willing, we're going to finish the book of Revelation before the end of November. However, as we come to Revelation 20, and as I also told you back in August that we would do, we're going to slow down on this chapter, and we're going to look at a few different ways that Christians have understood and interpreted this particular section of Scripture throughout the centuries. I would be amiss, as your pastor, to preach through Revelation without helping you to understand, at least at a basic level, the three broad categories of interpreting Revelation 20, which are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. So God willing, over the next three Sundays, I'm going to take you through each of these ways of understanding Revelation one by one in some greater detail. However, today I'm going to give you a very basic overview of all three, and then I'm going to put in a good word for what some have jokingly called pan-millennialism, and we're going to talk about what has been called theological triage. The reason for this sermon, at the outset of what will essentially become a little mini-series on the millennium, is that it matters to God not only what doctrines we hold, but also the manner in which we hold said doctrines. And the way that we therefore relate to those who differ from us. So as your pastor, I do want to guide you in the doctrines themselves. But I also want to guide you in the manner of holding these doctrines. So this morning's message is actually not really going to be so much about the millennium. Although we will overview the different millennial understandings. But rather, the, the emphasis of this morning's message is actually going to be more so about the manner in which we ought to hold whatever position we end up landing on with respect to the millennium. With that in mind, let us begin with an overview of the millennial positions. And this is going to be pretty surface level. The next three weeks, I'm going to take a deeper dive into each one of the three. All right? As we come towards an overview of these three main millennial positions, I think it's important that we, that we define our terms. First of all, what do we mean when we talk about the millennium? Pre-millennium, post-millennium, all-millennium, millennialism. What, is, what, what are we talking about when we say the millennium? Well, it's right in our text this morning, Revelation chapter 20. As you might have known, a thousand years is mentioned in chapter 20, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 3, chapter 20, verse 6, sorry, 5, 6, and 7. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. And a thousand years is also known as a millennium, right? So the way that we call a hundred years a century or ten years a decade, we call a thousand years a millennium. And so theologians have obviously noted that there is such a thing as a millennium in Revelation chapter 20. So you remember 
I've told you before, uh, in a different context, when we've been talking about uh, the doctrines of grace and, and uh, what is so-called Calvinism, someone once asked John MacArthur in a question and answer period, do you believe in election? And he said, well, theoretically, every Christian believes in election because the word elect is in the Bible. The question is, what is election? What is the nature of it? And so on and so forth. Likewise, every Christian has some sort of, or, or ought to have, some sort of theology about the millennium. Because it's in the Bible. So you can't just say, do you believe in the millennium? It's like, well, it's right here, five or six times in Revelation chapter 20. We all ought to have some sort of theology about the millennium. So what does the millennium mean? What does it refer to? These are where the positions vary and diverge from one another. Some people take it as a, a strictly literal, exact thousand years. Others take it as a um, n not necessarily a literal period of time, but a figurative period of time, the way that sometimes in Scripture, 40 years, for example, doesn't always mean exactly 40 years, but sometimes means a long period of time, or even at, at times it, it denotes a generation or whatever. Some people take the millennium, the thousand years in Revelation 20, as denoting a long time. Some people, as we'll see, take it as the whole age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, which we obviously know, strictly speaking, has been longer than a thousand years. In fact, we're approaching 2,000 years since Christ ascended. And, uh, and so different positions take it in different ways. Um, this is, but this is where the whole language of millennium comes from. What are we referring to when we talk about the thousand years in Revelation? Or sorry, this is what we're referring to when we talk about the thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. Now, just a little bit of grammar to remind you, for those of you who haven't sat in grammar class for a good number of years now, we will remember that... Pre and post and a are all prefixes, which are affixed to the beginning of a word. So pre means before, post means after, and a is a negation, which basically cancels out whatever comes after it. Right? So you think about atheist, and atheist is not a theist. It, it negates theism, right? Uh, we, I think we're familiar enough with this, but I would just remind you that these are, when we hear a word like pre-millennial or post-millennial or amillennial, it can sound at first quite intimidating, but we just have to break it down. And we go, well, the millennium is a thousand years. Something is, that's pre-millennial is referring to something before the thousand years. Something that is post-millennial is referring to something after the thousand years. And something that is amillennial is negating the thousand years in some sense. Now, what is it that is supposed to happen pre-millennium or post-millennium or without reference particular to any particular millennium. It is the return, the visible return of Christ Jesus. Now I'm going to go on to 
speak about these, the way that this is understood in each of these perspectives. But the whole idea of premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism is how the visible return of Christ is related to a particular reign of Christ described in verses 4 and 6 in Revelation chapter 20, in which Christ Jesus is thought to reign in a visible and manifest way over general society, or what we might call the common kingdom, what you've heard me before called the common kingdom. So whether whether you're an American or Barbadian or Canadian or whatever, we all live in the common kingdom in contradistinction to Christ's particular special kingdom, which is distinct from the other nations of the earth. There's Christ's kingdom, and then there's the common kingdom. In, with respect to what these terms refer to, it has to do with a visible manifest reign of Christ Jesus in, on earth in the common kingdom. Alright, so in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 20, it says that a certain subset of the dead at the very end of verse 4, it says, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And at the end of verse 6, it says, they will reign with him for a thousand years. So with respect to what these different terms refer to, it's referring to a visible manifest reign of Christ on earth in general society or over what we might call the common kingdom. Alright? If this is not all gelling just yet, don't worry. We're going to be here for four weeks. We'll get it. But I want to begin to help you understand what we mean when we say certain things. Okay? So, let's look very briefly at each of the three, beginning with premillennialism. In premillennialism, the visible return of Christ precedes a millennium where Christ will reign on earth in a visible, manifest, obvious way before the eternal state. Okay, so in premillennialism, when Christ returns, that's not, um, that doesn't end, usher in the state of things which will remain in perpetuity for all of eternity. Rather, in premillennialism, when Christ returns, that begins a thousand year reign of Christ on earth between his return and the ushering in of the eternal state. So, pre-millennialism, the visible return of Christ, is pre or prior to a millennial reign of Christ on earth. After the thousand years, there is a various variations within premillennialism about exactly what happens. But after the thousand, after the thousand years, then we enter into the eternal state in premillennialism. All right. Postmillennialism has the visible return of Christ after a visible manifest reign of Christ on earth. Again, either for a thousand years or a symbolically long period of time, depending on the postmillennialist that you speak to. All right. Now, this should raise a question. 
how could Christ reign on earth in a visible, manifest way before his visible coming, his return? And the answer is that in post-millennialism, Christ reigns for a thousand years or, or possibly a long time, symbolized by a thousand years, on earth through his church, which at least leavens and perhaps even occupies seats of power in the common kingdom or in general society. And so the idea is that through his word and his spirit working through the proclamation of truth, there is going to be such success of the gospel that the church will exercise so much influence in and upon the common kingdom and general society that there will be a very real and public sense in which most people will have reverence for Christ and recognize his lordship over society. And then, after a long period of time, or possibly a literal thousand years of this, then Christ returns and consummates uh, everything and, and ushers us into the eternal state. Okay? So premillennialism has Christ returning before a visible, manifest, obvious reign in general society, uh, in the common kingdom on earth. Postmillennialism has Jesus reigning visibly and manifestly in the common kingdom before Christ himself actually physically returns. And so his reign is through his word and spirit as his church faithfully proclaims and contends for his truth in the midst of what is presently a hostile and unbelieving world. Victory is gradually assured. Alright? Thirdly, amillennialism. Amillennialism says not that there is no millennium, because again, as I mentioned earlier, even amillennialists can see that there's a thousand years in Revelation 20. But amillennialists do not take Revelation 20 as indicating that there's, there's any sort of visible, obvious, manifest reign of Christ in the common kingdom or over general society uh, at all before his second coming or after his second coming that we're not really to expect that. What we're to expect is that when he returns the common kingdom ceases to be because he gathers out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and takes over and those who remain are all those who have been saved all those who are Christians and so his kingdom is the only kingdom after he returns and so amillennialism negates the idea that there is ever a thousand year reign of Christ on earth in which there are believers and unbelievers still walking the earth and yet Christ is very visibly, obviously, manifestly reigning over this mixed society. Amillennialism rejects that understanding of the millennialism, which is why it's called amillennial. It negates that kind of understanding altogether. So Christ's kingdom continues to grow in amillennialism, but there is no promise of any sort of golden age in which Christ visibly and manifestly reigns in general society uh, either through his church if it was before his second coming or after his return in 
some sort of millennial kingdom, amillennialism rejects that whole paradigm altogether and says that the common kingdom continues to operate more or less predictably all the way through this age. There may be pockets of success or regression, as it were, in common society, and then Jesus returns and ushers in the eternal state. As I said, we're going to take a deeper dive into each of those three, one at a time, over the next three weeks. But those are sort of the basic contours of these positions. Now, moving on from that, an introduction to pan-millennialism and the concept of theological triage. I was at a pastor's conference back in 2013 or so, somewhere around there, 2011, maybe 2012, I don't know, somewhere around there. And a bunch of guys were talking and asking each other, what do you believe about the millennium? So some were saying amillennial, some were saying postmillennial, some were saying premillennial. And then one guy said, I'm panmillennial. And I said, I said, well, what's panmillennial? He said, well, I just believe it will all pan out in the end. <laughs> Ever, ever since I heard that the first time, I've always appreciated that joke. And I, and I, I want to put in a good word for pan-millennialism this morning, alright? Some, some balk at the joke, some people think that it, they raise the concern that it waters down the importance of the doctrine of eschatology, or end times, or last things. You know, if we, if we joke about pan-millennialism, eventually we're all going to think that, pan, that pre-millennialism, amillennialism, post-millennialism is unimportant. And then if we start to think that's unimportant, we're going to start to think other doctrines are unimportant. And before you know it, we're all going to be theological liberals who don't stand for anything, right? So, all right, I get, I get the concern. I understand the concern. There is such a thing as theological liberalism. It does begin with negating the importance of doctrine. I understand that. At the same time, watering down, listen to me clearly, watering down the relative importance of doctrine, some doctrines relative to other doctrines, is actually desirable at times. If there is an error on one side of watering down doctrine altogether, there is an error on the other side of making every doctrine equally important and equally central. I saw a little exchange on Twitter, um, not familiar with this first character, maybe some of you are, seems to be a solid brother as far as I could tell, just kind of poking around and trying to figure out who he is. His name's Chris Bolt. He said, quote, primary, secondary, and tertiary matters of faith are the go-to terms for theological liberals and those pressing others that way through implying anything less than a primary doctrine does not matter. Where does scripture teach these categories? End quote. Which I think was meant to be a rhetorical question. But another fellow named Gavin Orland took up the question and actually provided some scriptures where these categories may be deduced from scripture itself. Gavin Orland provides biblical basis for weighting some things as proportionately more or less important than other things. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, you, don't, you can follow along with me if you've got fast fingers, but otherwise you can feel free to just listen. I'm going to turn to a bunch. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in, according, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, etc., etc., etc. Paul says this is of first importance which implies a category of things that are not of first importance. Secondly, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23, where Jesus is pronouncing woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. This is a really helpful passage for us in understanding things because Jesus creates a category for the weightier matters of the law, which implies the lighter matters of the law. There is such a thing as the weightier matters and the lighter matters. But Jesus also says... You're actually correct to have tithes from your mint and your dill and your cumin. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So what Jesus does is he goes, there are weightier matters and there are lighter matters. And you are doing the lighter matters but neglecting the weightier matters. What's the solution? Keep doing the lighter matters but also pay attention to the weightier matters. So we're not saying lighter matters are nothing. We're not saying that which is not of first importance is of no importance. We are saying there is that which is of first importance and then there is that which is of secondary or tertiary importance, but it is still of importance. There are matters of the law which are weightier matters of the law and matters of the law which are lighter matters of the law. And those which are not the weightier matters of the law are not unimportant matters of the law. Jesus says these you ought to have done while also recognizing the proportionate importance of taking care of the weightier matters. Next, Romans 14. And verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Have you ever met a Christian who has opinions that he wants to quarrel over? I'm seeing a whole bunch of people shaking their head, no. Me neither. <laughs> Theoretically, let's just say, if you ever ran across a, a Christian who wanted to quarrel about an opinion, the Bible gives you warrant to, to put some things in the categories of mere opinions, which actually you don't need to engage over. So there are going to be people who think that their opinions are so significant that they ought to be quarreled over. But it is right and good in some cases to label something a mere opinion and then not even to engage, not even to entertain the debate. Simply to say, well, you're entitled to your opinion. Now, when people, when you tell people that, the sort who want to quarrel over their opinions, what do they say? They say, you don't take doctrine seriously, right? You don't take the Bible seriously. And a proper 
biblical rejoinder to that would be, I do take the Bible so seriously, every verse of it, including Romans 14.1, which tells me that I do not need to quarrel over every opinion. Now, obviously, the, the trick comes in labeling what should be quarreled over and what shouldn't. But simply to acknowledge that there is a category for opinions which don't need to be quarreled over, this is the plain teaching of Scripture. Next, there are differing degrees of sin. Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 11. Her sister, Aholibah, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. Jeremiah 36, or pardon me, 16, and verse 12. Because you have done worse than your fathers, for behold, every one of you follows his stubborn even will evil will, refusing to listen to me. So there is such a thing as being more corrupt and doing worse than somebody else. John chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus is speaking to Pilate, and he says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now again, I'm not trying to exposit that passage today, as our brother ably handled it uh, well, probably over a year ago now, I would think. There's some difficulty in understanding exactly what's meant here. But again, simply recognizing that there are categories for varying degrees of sin. That's plainly taught in this passage. So, which leads us then to another concept, which is different levels of punishment. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. Jesus is speaking, and he says... It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In other words, the town that rejects the apostles. More bearable or less bearable. So, 
So what we, what we recognize when we look at the scriptures is that contra Chris Bull, there actually is biblical basis for recognizing some things as primary, some things as secondary, some things as tertiary. This is not just the language of theological liberalism and those pressing others that way. It's not a slippery slope to acknowledge in principle that not every doctrine is of first importance, some are, and some are implicitly of secondary importance or presumably tertiary importance and so forth. Likewise, there are weightier matters of the law and lighter matters of the law. Likewise, there are some things which are mere opinions. Likewise, there are wrongdoings which lead to more severe consequences, discipline, punishment, and some which lead to less and lighter. We need to recognize that not everything in Scripture is equally central, equally important. And so, without saying that anything in Scripture is unimportant, we want to properly weight and balance things. An error of theological liberalism is to basically downplay everything to the point where you'll hear theological liberals even say things like some of the most rank in their midst, say things like, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus physically rose or not. As long as we believe He rose in our hearts, we find the inspiration and the meaning that we need to live our lives. You know, like, etc. Like, you hear, like, not bare nonsense like that coming out of rank liberalism. And it's like, well, obviously, as conservative Christians, we can see serious problems with that. But what you see is there's an, there's an opposite error which treats every doctrine with the same amount of importance. And so whether Jesus rose from the dead or not is treated, for example, with the same importance as uh, whether or not a church should have an evening service. Or, you know, to to take something even more significant, but surely still less significant than the bodily resurrection of Jesus, take the, the proper subjects of baptism and the proper mode. Right? Like, we need to be able to say, okay, some things are first important, some things are secondary, and so on. Albert Moeller talks then about the concept of theological triage, which I'm sure our medical students will be able to relate to quite readily. Quote, the word triage comes from the French word trier, which means to sort. Thus, the triage officer in the medical context is the frontline agent for deciding which patients need the most urgent treatment. Without such a process, the scraped knee would receive the same urgency of consideration as a gunshot wound to the chest. The same discipline that brings order to the hectic arena of the emergency room can also offer great assistance to Christians defending the truth in the present age. So, you imagine how silly it would be if you showed up to the, gun, to the emergency room with a gunshot wound to the chest, and they simply say, take a number. Right? And so you pull number 36, and number 35 is, you know, a small child who has scraped his knee and is crying, and the, it's the, you know, a first-time mother, and she's panicking, and she's needlessly brought this child to the emergency room. And then the person behind the desk simply goes, 35. 
And you say, oh, like I'm dying. And they say, oh, first come, first serve. Right? You, you would recognize this, the silliness of treating medical issues with the same degree of urgency. Is anyone saying that we should not disinfect the small child's scrape, that we shouldn't dress it and treat it and comfort the child and so on and so forth? No, not at all. But what we are saying is that things need to be given relative importance. Likewise, we want to do that with doctrines. So, Moeller goes on and talks about first order doctrines, which are those required to hold and believe to be a Christian. If you persistently hold a doctrine contrary to these, even after you've been sufficiently and properly taught, you become, at that point, a heretic. Somebody who is not a Christian by virtue of beliefs which are so aberrant that it doesn't reflect uh, even biblical Christianity at its most basic level. Right? So this would be things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If you understand the issues involved and the implications and so on and so forth, and still hold that Jesus didn't really physically rise but just rose in our hearts, that actually puts you outside of Christianity. You are not a Christian. And there are, there are professors in esteemed academic institutions who would be quite incensed at what I just said because they themselves do not believe in a bodily resurrection and yet are professors of Christian theology in institutions which have long since abandoned the conservative moorings of the faith. But the point stands, there are certain things you need to believe to be a Christian. So those are what Moeller calls first order doctrines. Second order doctrines are those which he says you need to believe to be in the same church. I'm going to speak to this in a moment, but he says, he says that there needs to be a certain level of doctrinal agreement to be able to believe, to be able to be members in the same church as others. And then what he says is there are third order doctrines, which are those with which disagreement is okay even within the same church. And then presumably beyond that would be where we would find things like opinions, which are not even necessarily able to be conclusively substantiated. I don't know if I like exactly the way Al Mohler has broken it down for reasons that I'm about to explain. But however exactly we articulate this idea, the concept of theological triage surely is legitimate. And it is helpful to us in figuring out how do we navigate doctrinal disagreements among Christians. Let me take a stab at how I understand it and at least put it out there. And you know what? If you, if you prefer Albert Moeller's over mine, well, look, I think that's a secondary or a tertiary thing. And perhaps even, perhaps even an opinion that we don't need to quarrel about. But let me, let me try to... Let me just try to make a more precise articulation of it. I want you to think of concentric circles like a dartboard. Okay? So you have the innermost circle, and then you have another circle outside of that, and another circle outside of that, and another circle outside of that, so on and so forth. Okay? I think that the innermost circle, I would agree with, Albert Moeller is those doctrines that you need to believe simply to be a Christian. 
I think what the way I would modify Moeller's paradigm is when he goes, when he says first order, secondary, third, etc. I would simply ask the question, for what? For what? For what purpose? So, and that would lead us to probably slightly different places where we might land. So, to be a Christian, sure, there are certain doctrines which you you must you must hold, or at least you must not oppose. Uh, and let me just make a point here. Some people don't properly understand a doctrine. Okay, and once they're properly taught, they receive the correct orthodox doctrine on a particular issue. But they might say something to you in conversation, and you, you think to yourself, if you're well-versed in Christian theology, you think to yourself, that's technically a heresy. It's happened to me before, even with members of my own church. In fact, I've even inadvertently said things before that are technically heresies, and I've, I think, I've caught myself. I don't think, I don't think anything ha- has ever been seriously brought as a, as a heresy that I've actually held or persisted in. But I've spoken in a sloppy manner, and and have have been at times not as careful as I should have been, and said something that is technically a heresy. And then I realized, and I've even gone back before you and said, last Sunday when I said X, Y, Z, technically that was a heresy. I apologize. This is what I did not mean by that, which is the heresy. And this is what I did mean by that, but it was a poor way of speaking. Let me clear that up. We should be slow in labeling someone, therefore, as a heretic and very quickly writing them off. We need to make sure that someone understands the issues involved and continues to persist in holding a heretical doctrine and was not merely untaught, uninformed, or imprudent in the way that they spoke. So with that in mind, yes, there are things that you need to believe or at least not oppose to be a Christian. Then I would say we, we're going to think about what are, what are essential, necessary, first-order doctrines, but I think we have to say for what? For what? Because... Let's take, for example, the, the proper subjects and mode of baptism. I think we would all recognize that that is not a uh, primary issue in the sense of if you disagree with another Christian about that, it doesn't automatically mean that you're a Christian and they're not, or they're a Christian and you're not, etc., etc. But, for example, if there's a young man and a young woman who are interested in each other and are not yet married and are considering marriage, I would say it's important for them to talk with one another about their understanding of the proper subjects and mode of baptism. Because if one is a paedo-baptist, which means that they baptize the children of believers in their infancy, and one is a credo-baptist, which means that they wait until there is a credible profession of faith before they administer the sacrament, that could raise a very significant issue between these two people. I would say that for some people, their convictions are so strong that it would be prudent for them not to marry someone who does not agree with them on this because it's going to create tension and conflict, perhaps to some sense irreconcilable and irresolvable 
within the marriage. I don't mean in the sense that they will be divorced, but what I mean is in the sense that they may never be able to figure out what to do with their own kids. And if neither of the spouses is willing to move or budge on this, and it's going to be a serious issue of conscience and conviction every time a, a, a new child is born in the family. That's something that I think might be an issue of first importance for that particular couple. But another couple might actually weight that same conversation differently. I've seen it occur where a woman is a credo-baptist, a man is a pedo-baptist, but she says, I think that credo-baptism is right, but I will follow and submit to you as the head of our home with respect to baptizing our infants. And so there's a workable solution for that family. So in that sense, in that particular context, for those people, that might become a secondary issue rather than a primary issue, and the marriage could proceed accordingly. I would say also, as the scripture says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? There is a certain sense in which the leaders of a church must agree together a certain amount. But here again, I would say, what amount? Because different churches do it differently. And different churches have different statements of faith. Different churches have different levels of specificity in their statement of faith. So again, I think even there, an issue that might be a primary issue in some churches would be a secondary issue in other churches. For example, in this church, we would not have somebody on staff, or, or sorry, not even on staff, in the officership of the church who does not hold to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And so any issue in there would be a primary issue for us in terms of examining a candidate's eligibility for officership in the church. Now, you should know that I would be eligible doctrinally for eldership in probably the large majority of Baptist churches in the world because I have basically orthodox standard doctrine. I happen to believe a good number more things than most churches would expect as a bare minimum for their pastors to hold. So that, doesn't, that does not mean, that might mean I might come on staff with someone in a particular church who, for example, holds to a more Arminian soteriology, whereas I hold a more Calvinistic soteriology. I may come on staff with somebody who holds a more continuationist view of the gifts of the Spirit, whereas I hold a more cessationist view of gifts of the Spirit. And in some churches, that might be perfectly okay. If I'm content to be there, and they're content to have me, and the other pastors are content to work with me, that could be a totally workable situation in another church. But in our church, we require a pretty thorough level of agreement and specificity with respect to the doctrines that we expect our officers to hold. So I'm just trying to show you with some specific examples that I don't think it's so simple to just say in a vacuum what doctrines are primary, what doctrines are secondary, what doctrines are tertiary. But I think we have to say for what? In Look at a particular context and say what must be insisted upon here in this particular context for this particular purpose 
And then whatever those essential doctrines are in those contexts, I would say they're primary there in that situation for those specific purposes and other things therefore are secondary. But depending on the context, some things may become more or less primary. Here at CRBC, we expect this thorough doctrinal agreement among the officers, but we simply expect for our members to hold that innermost core of Christian doctrine. In other words, doctrinally speaking, if you hold an orthodox view of God and the gospel, like the basic central things that make you a Christian that theoretically all Christians should agree about, then you would, you would be eligible doctrinally for membership in this church. Within this church, we have members who disagree about Calvinism or Arminianism, which is soteriology. Within this church, we have members who disagree about continuationism and secessionism, cessationism, which is pneumatology. Within this church, we have members who disagree about baptism and church government, which is ecclesiology. And within this church, and circling back around to our main idea this morning, we have members that disagree about millennialism, eschatology, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Is, given the fact that I'm telling you today that members of this church can disagree about millennialism, moreover, I would say even officers of this church could disagree about millennialism, since there are versions of premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, which are all consistent with the 1689 confession. Since I'm telling you we can disagree about this and be in the same church, and you might even be able to serve as an officer in the church depending on how you would understand those things. Am I telling you that eschatology is therefore unimportant? No. It affects various things. Let me give you two. I believe it was earlier this week. It feels like a month since I've been here, but I know it was just last Sunday. That's because I've flown to Canada and back. I believe that it was this week someone was sharing in the chat about how Sometimes we find it hard to long for Christ's return. Let me just say this. Your view of eschatology, in terms of what you expect when Christ returns, is going to affect the level of longing that you feel for Christ's return. So that's one practical application of eschatology. Another one is this. How we ought to live in the meantime. What you think of continuity and discontinuity may significantly impact and affect the things that you prioritize and spend your time on and the way you conceive of the importance of those things in light of eternity depending on what you believe about what happens in the end. So there's another practical application. So I'm not saying that it's therefore unimportant, but what I am saying is it's not primary either for being a member of this church or even potentially for being an officer of this church. If you can hold a version of any of those three that are consistent with the 1689, it becomes therefore a secondary doctrine in this context. 
What I am saying to you is that I don't think it's something that we should fight or divide over. I suggest that we all become hyphenated pan-millennialists. What I mean by that is the way that when a woman wants to keep her last name for some reason upon a marriage, which, um, yeah, <laughs> every time I, I, every time I say for some reason. <laughs> Look, I'm not, I'm not even trying to throw shade. This is not a sermon about that. Assuming there was a legitimate reason for a woman to keep her last name, and she wants to, but she doesn't want to not take her husband's name. What often happens is the creation of a hyphenated last name, right? So instead of being Susan Smith, now she's Susan Smith Brown, right? Hyphenated last name. What I would suggest to you, and I'm saying this a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think you understand the point. What I think I would suggest to you is that we all become hyphenated pan-millennialists. In other words, if you're a premillennial, be a pan-millennial premillennial. If you're a post-millennial, be a pan-millennial post-millennial. If you're an amillennial, be a pan-millennial amillennial. In other words, hold whatever position you believe to be biblical. That's right and that's good. Search the scriptures, come to a conclusion about what you think is there, what you believe is there. But hold it in a way that you can have a more fundamental agreement and union with all other Christians, irrespective of their millennial view. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20 says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Listen, which Christian in this room is doctrinally opposed to saying that? It shouldn't be any. Right? All of us should be able to say, Come Lord Jesus. Right? And all of us truly, without, without like, if I can move away from the joking side of it to the, to the kernel of truth that's there, all of us really should be able to believe and heartily assert that it will pan out in the end. Right? Irrespective of exactly how those details parse out and the sequence of events and so on and so forth, all of us really should believe all jokes aside, that it is going to pan out in the end. And we're all expecting that Jesus is going to fix things. Right? And that everything's going to be alright in the end. And so we can all be on the same page about saying, come Lord Jesus. So, I'm not saying that these millennial positions are unimportant, but I would just urge us to have a proportionate level of conviction about these things and a proportionate level of contention for the truth of these things. I have seen Christians get quite nasty with one another over various things over the years. A few that I already mentioned. Calvinism, Arminianism. Continuationism, cessationism. Baptism and church government. And millennial positions. Romans 15 Verse 1 says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That's what that section of Scripture is about, Romans 15. 
And it concludes like this, Romans 15 and verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is not a sermon on Romans 15, so I'm not going to exposit that whole section. But the section that starts with the strong, bearing with the failings of the weak, ends with this statement. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, how did Christ welcome us? He welcomed us with our weaknesses. He welcomed us with our misunderstandings. He welcomed us with our failings. He welcomed us with our sins even. And we are told, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And that's in the context of the strong bearing with the failings of the weak. So, this passage in Romans 15 does not negate that there are strong brothers and weak brothers. This passage does not negate that there are right and wrong brothers. This passage implicitly endorses that, in fact. So Romans 15 doesn't say, look, if you think you're stronger than someone else, you're wrong, because we're all weak. If you think you're right and someone else is wrong, you're just arrogant because you're all wrong or you're all right. It doesn't say anything of that sort. It acknowledges that there is such a thing as strong and weak, and implicitly that there is such a thing as right and wrong. But it says if you're right, if you're strong, bear with the failings of the wrong and weak. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. When we disagree about stuff, and one person says, well, I believe this, and another person says, well, I believe this, by definition, both of those people believe that they are right. Both of those people believe that they are strong. And both of those people believe, therefore, that the other person is the wrong brother, the weak brother, right? What this passage says ought to be your disposition when a conflict comes up, is that if you think you're the strong one, then bear with the failings of the weak and treat them graciously, receive them graciously as Christ has received us. We have to learn to distinguish between doctrines that we need to stand firm on given the situation and ones in which we may allow one another some liberty. With respect to membership in this church, we can give each other liberty on millennialism. With respect to the officership of this church, there's even some liberty on millennialism. There are maybe ways and variations of understanding premillennialism and postmillennialism, uh, perhaps even amillennialism, which might be outside of the bounds of the confession. But there are also ways of articulating any of these three positions that are acceptable from a confessional perspective. But whatever practical decisions need to be made as we think about the implications of holding certain doctrines, we always need to make sure that there is love and grace for the weaker brother and the wrong brother. There are a lot of things that we just don't know. There are a lot of things that we think we know that we actually don't know. Have you ever changed your mind? You see like one person nodding yes. <laughs> 
I, tr I trust, I hope, that all of you have changed your mind at some point. <laughs> Look, over the last three years, I myself have changed my mind on millennialism. I used to hold a post-millennial view, and now I hold an all-millennial view. So me too. Perhaps you will change your mind over the course of this uh, mini-series on millennialism. Perhaps not. And that's okay. Let us remember that, as they say, the plain things are the main things. And we can all say, come Lord Jesus. Let us therefore operate with love and charity toward one another as we explore millennialism together with appropriate humility and kindness toward one another, welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us.